What is up guys? This is All The Smoke on Strength and Physique with your hosts, Adam and Chris, where we provide you with evidence-based information, community support, and recognition to all who are betting themselves with fitness. All right, welcome back to All The Smoke on Strength and Physique. We got the one and only Dr. Samuel Buckner, also known as Dr. Biceps. If you've never seen this guy lift or even do any crazy calisthenic movements, uh, you are missing something from your life. Um, Dr. Buckner has been, I would say, one of those individuals that really challenged me in my master's degree and almost made me question a lot of what I thought I knew um, coming into my master's degree. And I really cannot thank him enough uh, for being a mentor, being a great professor um, in my life. So without further ado, Dr. Butner, could you introduce yourself to our six listeners, please? Yeah. Uh, should I address the six listeners by name or? <laughs> <laughs> oh, Lord. Um, <laughs> anyway, yeah, I'm, I'm Sam Buckner. Um, I got my PhD at University of Mississippi. I, I grew up doing gymnastics. Um, so I've always enjoyed exercise and working out. My senior year in high school, I took weight training the entire year. And um, we had a block schedule. That means your classes were two hours long. So I had two hours of weight training my entire senior year of high school. And when it came time looking for a degree, I, I just wanted to do something related to exercise. Um, so that was the only thing I really seemed to enjoy. And, and I pursued exercise science. Um, no clear path. Somehow I ended up getting a PhD studying skeletal muscle adaptation. Um, my PhD focused, uh, I guess, somewhat on blood flow restriction. So restricting blood flow to your muscles while you train. Uh, my mentor is Jeremy Lenicky. And um, yeah, we studied BFR and I also have interest and have, have done some work on the relationship between changes in muscle size and changes in strength. Specifically interested in, do our muscles grow to make us stronger? Um, it's not as clear of a relationship as many would have us believe. Um, and yeah, now I'm a professor, assistant professor at University of South Florida in Tampa. Um, I have a research lab there, the USF Muscle Lab, where we continue to ask questions about skeletal muscle adaptation and try to design studies to better understand a lot of this stuff. So I just find muscle fascinating. And I think the research process is a really cool way um, to learn more about how we train, why we train and what we can accomplish through our training. So for during your PhD, did you stumble into BFR or how, like, how did you come about wanting to focus on that more? So, yeah, I'll, I'll be honest. I did not want to study BFR at all. <laughs> um, I remember when I first heard about BFR and, and a lot of people are probably like this, right? So you know, I was coming up when vasodilators were the big thing, the big supplement, the, the expensive one that, you know, if you were fortunate enough to have a little bit of money in grad school, you could, you could afford the no explode and, and all these other cool things. Um, so I came up under people were trying to increase blood flow to their muscles. So it made very little sense to me. Why would you restrict blood flow to your muscle when this guy over here is taking a supplement? but to increase blood flow to his muscle to get the quote pump. So I thought it was a really non-intuitive thing. It didn't make a lot of sense to me. And it also seemed to overcomplicate training, which I've never really been a fan of. So 
the reason I ended up studying blood flow restriction is because um, Jeremy Lenicky, who ended up being my mentor, that's what he was interested in at the time. And um, I basically wanted to learn more about muscle and I wanted to study muscle growth and BFR was kind of the platform that allowed me to do that, right? So you could you can make a muscle grow with BFR, with low loads, high loads, with aerobic exercise. I just wanted to make muscles grow and study it. And BFR was one of the tools that we used. So I would say I didn't specifically have interest in BFR at the time. Um, I thought it was really, really strange. And, and I've come to appreciate it. And, and, and I am fascinated by BFR. I enjoy using it from time to time now. Um, but I, I, I do think, you know, people think like, oh, this guy's super into BFR. It was, it was pretty much the opposite, but it really allowed me to learn a lot more about skeletal muscle adaptation and how manipulating the vascular system could perhaps augment skeletal muscle adaptation to low load exercise, which was, was pretty neat. But yeah, didn't, didn't really like it at all at first. So you keep mentioning skeletal muscle. Uh, let's just touch on the importance of that because there are different types of muscle. Could you tell our listeners the few different types of muscle and why you focus on skeletal muscle and how that differs from the others? Yeah. So, and, and sometimes I'll slip up. I'll just say muscle, but I, I usually um, refer to muscle adaptation that I'm interested in as skeletal muscle adaptation because. You know, we don't always think of the heart as a muscle, but the heart is made out of muscle tissue and that's cardiac muscle tissue, um, which obviously acts different than skeletal muscle. You can't, you can't focus and contract your heart tissue, right? Um, no one that I know of has that ability to, to flex their heart. Um, luckily, it's, it's always working and, you know, we, we dive into those mechanisms in, in cardiovascular class. And then we have smooth muscle cells, right? So, we're, we're able to, and again, this is not voluntary. You don't focus and, and, and constrict the muscle around your arteries or arterioles to tell your blood where to go. On their own, they contract and relax. And basically they're the conductors of blood flow, right? So the sympathetic nervous system helps constrict and, and, and relax these um, smooth bands of muscle around our vasculature. And if you close off the vasculature, you're not gonna get blood flow. If you relax that muscle and open up, you're going to get blood flow. But the muscle that I study and that I'm most interested in is the muscle that we're all familiar with, the muscle, skeletal muscle that allows us to lift weights, um, to do different activities, to engage in sport. And of course, they're all three involved in sport, but the one we recognize most and the one most people they look in the mirror and they try to make their skeletal muscle grow. That's, that's the tissue that I'm most interested in. Now with listing all those three types of muscles and kind of picking back off BFR, how are, or what are the certain mechanisms to actually induce skeletal muscle growth that you've kind of found in your career thus far? Yeah. So, um, I, I think I would, reduce it to a combination of mechanical and metabolic stimuli to induce skeletal muscle growth. Um, so how I like to explain it to people is, um, you know, if, if say you're contracting your bicep, right? And when you contract your bicep muscle, you want to activate as much as that muscle as you possibly can 
right? Because if you turn on a fiber, you can activate proteins in that fiber that are gonna tell that fiber to grow and get bigger, right? So you have to engage this cascade. And to do that, you have to activate the fiber. Now, if you pick up a 10 pound dumbbell and you lift it a couple of times, I think most people know that they didn't need all of their musculature to perform that task, right? It's a really lightweight. So let's say you activated 15% of your muscle. So the mechanical component, the weight, only required 15%. If you pick up a 50 pound dumbbell, lift the same range of motion, two or three reps. Now to, to move that weight, maybe you had to recruit 80% of the muscle involved in that movement. So the mechanical component increased from 15 to, to, to 80, right? Now, what if we don't have access to this mechanical component to activate our fibers, right? So if you lifted that 10 pound dumbbell and you'd start doing a lot of reps, Eventually, you would produce metabolites, right, byproducts of that contraction that are going to cause you to fatigue, right? So now, let's say you're 20 reps in with a 10-pound dumbbell, and the muscle that was causing the movement has now fatigued, so it turns off. What do you have to do? You have to turn on other muscle fibers, right? So if you keep doing repetitions, you keep activating more and more of the musculature because more and more of the musculature is becoming fatigued. So you're coming from point A to point B, right? We wanna activate all of the fibers involved in that movement. And we can activate those fibers through mechanical, through a really heavy weight, or we can activate it through a lightweight, but we have to fatigue it and rely on metabolites to help us induce that activation. So in most conversations I hear nowadays, um, I believe most people attribute muscle growth to mechanical stimuli. But if you don't have a heavy mechanical stimuli, you can indirectly still activate the fibers through metabolic contributions. Does that make sense? Now, what about uh, uh, muscular damage? Because I know that's another main mechanism. Uh, is that something that can, if you focus on like fast eccentrics, is that something that can sort of relate to similar muscle growth as maybe like a, uh, a heavy weight or doing a, a lot of, a lot of reps. So, yeah, when, when we're talking about muscle damage as a mechanism for growth, um, eccentric exercise is going to induce growth. It's going to stimulate the muscle to grow. Um, but I, I'm not convinced that the damage itself is, is causing growth. Right. So, um, when you think about it, the first time you ever train, you have a lot of damage, right? The second time you train, you already have less. The third time, even less. The fourth time, even less. So to me, it's, it's a little counterintuitive that if, if damage were a strong mechanism to make us grow, why would our, our physiology work so hard to protect ourselves from damage? Does that make sense? So it becomes harder and harder to damage your muscle because your muscle is protecting itself, it's reinforcing itself. And, you know, I think if it were a mechanism, there wouldn't be such robust adaptations in skeletal muscle to protect us from damaging the muscle. And then I, I suppose another good piece of evidence um, against damage, and to be fair, some people believe that muscle damage is a mechanism, right? And you guys have probably heard that before. And 
you know, there's probably some fair points um, to that idea, but if you look at low load training, which causes the same growth as lifting heavy, if you perform that exercise to or near failure, the low load training doesn't have a great deal of measurable muscle damage, but it still induces growth, right? So muscle damage protocols might be accompanied with growth, but we know that you could have non-damaging exercise, which also causes growth. So at very best, I think muscle damage is a questionable mechanism um, regarding like, is it important for growth? I'm, I'm not convinced. Now, some of the discussions I've heard on, on different podcasts are this idea that if you're employing progressive overload, right, and, and, and continuing to push yourself, that you're going to continue to have damage. And that's kind of an indicator that you're still growing. Um, and I think I understand this point and, and maybe to an extent it's true, but I think people also have to recognize the fact that just because you're sore doesn't mean you have damage, right? And even when you get sore, when you progressively overload the stimulus, um, that damage is much, much less than it was the first time you've ever trained, right? So um, I, I, I think we sometimes confuse that, that horrible feeling from a really, really good gym session with we're super damaged. I think we have some inflammation, we have some swelling. I don't think we always have damage per se. And I don't think that damage is absolutely necessary um, to reach your potential for muscle growth. Would you say it's based, um, the training age sort of is a big impactor for the muscle damage uh, approach then? Um, or would you I, just I, sort of discredit focusing on muscle damage in general? Yeah, I would never make that the primary focus. Um, you know, I, I've heard people say if you're never getting sore, you're probably not pushing hard enough. And if you're always getting sore, you're pushing too hard. I think that's fair advice. Like, I, I think there are times where your training is going to lead to soreness. That's part of it, right? Um, but again, I, I don't necessarily think that that's damage, right? And I, I think that damage in comparison to uh, an untrained individual who's never lifted before, I think that's pretty, pretty different. And a good example is if I do a BFR protocol, I haven't done one in a while, right? If I did a BFR protocol in any muscle group, I'm going to be really, really sore, right? And, and Adam, I, I, I put you through some stuff back in the day and you are really sore and, and you would probably be resistant to the idea that that was not damage, right? But structurally speaking, if we would have pulled a muscle plug and looked at it, I would suspect that there wouldn't be Z-line streaming and these, these characteristics we associate with muscle damage. So soreness and damage are, are not perfectly coupled together all of the time. And um, so I, I wouldn't make that the focus but I think any coach should track that, those things, right? You, you start a new training cycle or, or a new block of training. Um, how do you feel after the first couple of weeks? What's your general soreness? Um, you know, these, these cues are always important for coaches to consider. Um, but I don't think that should be what we're chasing necessarily. 
So I guess at, in the general scheme of things, what is the best way to kind of induce or make sure that you have that insurance policy that, hey, I performed enough reps, sets, or I guess volume, so to say, as it's, I think, mostly known as to say, hey, I've given my all to, I guess, put myself in the best position to say, hey, I should be experiencing some type of muscle growth. What would you recommend? Um, so yeah, I, I suppose, first of all, you know, I, I guess most people who are training for growth want to grow every muscle, right? Cause we don't want to be lopsided disproportional individuals. Um, so you need to decide on what frequency fits your lifestyle, you know, and everyone's going to be a little bit different, right? So you all probably work with more people at this point than I do. Cause I design studies and make them adhere to my protocols, but you know, life isn't always a, a research study. And, you know, if someone has five days a week, you can probably design it in perhaps what would be considered more optimal than three days a week to train the gym, right? So I, I like a frequency of twice a week for a muscle group if possible. And how many sets? I mean, three to four sets per exercise seems reasonable to me. Um, I usually err on the more side than less side, um, you know, unless time is a real constraint, right? So when, when training a muscle for a simple movement, I think a lot of the times those first, the first set, I think you get 80% of, of the growth potential, right? The second set, you push it a little bit higher. By three sets in most cases, I think you're pretty good, right? But a lot of people want that fourth set as an insurance policy, right? So um, when you do an exercise, you have to think, okay, like we said in the beginning, we're starting here. We want to activate all the musculature and stimulate signal at as many fibers as we can. Well, there's going to be a point where that's accomplished and doing more sets is just delaying your recovery, right? And it's probably somewhere between two and four sets for a given exercise involving a given muscle group. And after that, I think you're largely delaying recovery, but, you know, quote meatheads or whatever we want to call them, like sometimes they just need more time in the gym. Psychologically, you need to feel like you've done a little bit more. And, and I, think, I think a lot of people have that mindset where if, if, if I don't feel buried, if, if I don't feel horrible when I leave, then I'm not. Um, but I, I do think two to four sets per exercise is, is, is probably getting you to that point where you're maximizing the mu muscle protein synthetic response. Um, and then maybe a few variations for each muscle group, which you could do on the same day. You could maybe or, or employ variety on different days to hit the musculature in a different way because variety of exercise, I think the literature is beginning to show us is important because the muscle doesn't grow the same across the muscle belly. Right, so doing a few different variations of an exercise is going to ensure that the top of the muscle is growing, the middle and the bottom of the muscle is growing, and recognizing that different aspects of the muscle probably have different potential to grow. Um, but two to four sets with a sufficient variety of exercise. Um, frequency became a popular thing, but I don't think there's good evidence that anything beyond two sessions of a, a week is 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 going to have a real huge impact on your adaptation. Um, but I think Chris kind of alluded to this. 
with advanced training age, I think it's worthwhile to, to try different things, right? So maybe you don't respond to, you know, low frequency training. So maybe on a, a certain muscle group that you think is lagging, you want to increase the frequency on that muscle group to see if maybe you can bring it up. So I think there are situations and periods of time where you increase focus on a muscle group because maybe it is a little bit behind your others or the development isn't where you want it to be, or it just seems like it's not responding. And I think when you do feel like a muscle group's not responding, it's, it's worthwhile to try to um, mess around with those variables a little bit to see if you can get it to respond. And maybe also try low loads, try loads, loads of BFR if you've been doing high load training to see if maybe that makes a difference. So I don't know so, if that answers the- yeah, no, I think that answered it really, really well. It actually, the, the muscle variety uh, to develop the different parts of the muscle, I think is a really good point. That is not something I really think about, although I try to incorporate uh, different varieties just to aid in the recovery aspect. But that leads me to my question for the recovery side of it. How, how would you say uh, a non-research mind should focus on recovery when they can't control for everything accordingly. Um, so re- re- recovery, I-, I suppose you have to have some metric by which you gauge um, how you feel on a, on a given training day and maybe be ready to make some, some I-, I guess in the moment, changes to, to how you plan to train on, on a given day. So I think one way to, to regulate um, your recovery and, and these sorts of things is to have variety of training load, um, which I kind of previously mentioned. So for, for me personally, if there's a day where I'm not feeling so great um, and I'm training for hypertrophy, instead of lifting heavy, I might just do a, a, a low load training day where I lift lighter weights um, and I'm still able to get my training in. Now, you might say, I'm not feel, like, it, it depends, Chris. So if, if you're feeling just tired in general, right? Which I think for me, that's more common, you know, work and stress get, get me down like as, as, a, as a whole organism, right? Whereas it's a different scenario if your chest is not recovering and it feels torn up and, um, you feel like you can't train that muscle that day. If that's the case, I would take just more rest in general or train a different muscle group. But if that's occurring, then I, I, I would suggest checking out your sleep, checking out your diet, right? And, and how many hours were between training sessions for that same muscle group. And I think that's more common with people who are new to training, right? When you're new to training and you squatted, a week later, you might still be sore, right? And scared of training again. And in those instances, from, from my experience, training again is, is sometimes the best way to, to feel better, right? So some of that, there has to be the mental grit to try to train through it. Now, if you are literally training a muscle group into the ground where it's not recovering and it's sore and your strength is going downward, then you need to take a step back. You need to probably take a break take a deload, um, do some recovery type stuff and, and try to get that muscle group back to the point where it can be trained with 
the frequency that you you're aiming at maybe that's twice a week but i think the most common thing is just the general fatigue right the general stress of life which maybe you're in a different mindset on a given day in the gym and i think in these moments um for me personally you know there's a certain grit to putting really heavy weight on the bar and trying to grind it out right and since I don't really care about strength personally, and I know that you can grow muscles with many different, you know, loads, lightweight and heavyweight. Um, if it's a day where I'm just not feeling it, I'll go with lighter weight um, and just try to rep out some, some, some reps, maybe do less sets overall. Um, but I think that's a nice strategy where on that light day, you're not putting a lot of stress on your joints. Um, you're putting less stress in your connective tissue. So Alternating heavy and light might be a nice way that people can promote recovery um, and preserve their connective tissue and joints a little bit more. So one thing that you mentioned that actually made me think of a, a side question is the time, be time between sessions. Why alone is that important? And what, uh, what different aspects is that taking into account? So uh, a, a big common myth that you see in the fitness industry is, oh, if you're not sore, then you can train the next day. Or uh, if you um, feel good, you can train the next day, no problem. You just keep doing that. Uh, why is that time between the sessions important? Well, there's a lot of ways I, I think I could approach to answer this. Um, I'll take the most obvious one to me. And that is you, you probably have more than one goal, right? So if, if you're, you're Adam and you just want to grow your chest, right? And so you're in there. Well, your chest is, is your, your, your lift that's coming up, isn't it, Adam? Um, uh, no, I've, I've been for, I couldn't even tell you how long, maybe three years, 315, 325 bench. So I, I need to do something. That's not no, that's pretty, that's, that's not bad. Hey, Adam, um, I, I know a couple coaches that could help you. Just let me know. <laughs> but if you, if you guys think about it, right? So um, I, I think of, of the body is, you know, we're, we're, we're consuming food, we have rest and you're trying to adapt. Right. So I, I think if you were to do the same, if, if you were to train a certain muscle group every day, um, it's almost like that one muscle is trying to be greedy and take all the adaptation. Now, there's, I don't have good evidence behind this, but this is how I think. Um, if, if you think about a, a specialist in powerlifting who only focuses on one thing, right? They can probably be very good at that one lift. Whereas someone who's trying to get good at three things in powerlifting, and I, I know this isn't growth, but the concept is similar. It's probably more difficult to have that really, really good lift when you're also trying to get good at, let's say, deadlifts and squats along with the bench press, right? So I think it's similar with muscle tissue. If say you're stimulating your legs every single day to grow, right? I do wonder if, if this competition for resources, right? For, for adaptive resources um, puts you in a situation where nothing's gonna be optimal if you don't allocate time and recovery to certain muscles. Does that make sense? So I, I think the, there are people that like to do full body high frequency training maybe they would still get to the same endpoint, um, but maybe the time it takes to get there might be a little bit different. 
Um, but I do wonder if there is like this competition of resources and this allocation of, of adaptation. And in our lab groups written on adaptation energy, um, which is this idea that we have a limited ability to adapt. And then even in a given time period, you can only adapt so much. And if you try to adapt more than that, it's just not going, going to happen. Um, a lot of this is, is, is pretty abstract at the moment. And we're, we're trying to better define what adaptation energy is. It's even real. Um, but you can probably only grow so much in a given period of time. So that's why I think maybe, um, and this is just, I'm not, I don't have data here, and I'm always uncomfortable speaking when I don't have data, but think about if you're trying to be really greedy with your legs and really bring them up, but then you're also trying to grow your chest and your arms and your back, I don't think it's gonna work. So I, I think dedicating time and recovery to, to different muscles might be a strategy that's worthwhile because maybe there is less competition for adaptation in that recovery period, right? There's 24 hours before you train again and you're training a different muscle, right? So you're allowing that recovery, you're, out, you're allowing that allocation of resources and adaptation, and then you're training something else. And that's gonna take resources and adaptation. Um, and again, that's all very abstract, but I, I think that allows recovery and adaptation of different, different muscle groups. Um, and I, and I do wonder, and again, no data here, but if you measured bicep growth over time, right? And you had a group that came in and trained, trained biceps twice a week. And you had another group that came in, they trained biceps twice a week, but then trained, they did squats for their legs. They did deadlifts. They did just give them 20 other exercises of stimulating muscle. I wonder, this would be a really cool study would you lose muscle size to the biceps because now you've trained 10 other muscles? Does that study design make sense? Yeah, that actually sounds like a really sweet study design that either you or Adam has to do. So, so Dr. I, Buckner, it's funny that you were talking about this because it was like two weeks ago, I was actually having a conversation with a lot of people at evidence-based movement. Um, we were all just joking about my bench progress and something that I give myself a, a, lot, a lot of shit for is literally... I always say, you know, I got to stay, st stop at RPE seven, eight, but I always go to RPE nine, nine and a half, 10, maybe. Um, and right. There's some good evidence out there that would say that you don't have to go to failure for specifically for strength. So would you speculate or how would your thought process is it maybe that if you are training for strength and your intensity is too high, you're not recovering because I would say it's really tough to you know maximal you know, intensity with squat and deadlift and you're allowing yourself and your body to maybe not be as beat up. And that's why you're still able to kind of, you know, increase those lifts as there's always that one lift that I guess maybe we're just egotistical maniacs as like, no, it's gotta be like this. I have to have this load on the bar, um, no matter how I feel or how it moves. Um, what are your thoughts on that specifically? Okay. So like, we're talking like the, the volume of specific strength training and how it relates to recovery. Um, yeah, so I think it depends. Like, I, I think for strength training, the volume should be pretty low, which promotes recovery, right? Um, so I, I guess I would ask is, is your volume pretty low when you are training? 
I would say so, but I, I guess may, more referring to, I guess, the, the intensity, so the load on that bar. So for training for strength yeah. specifically, we don't have to have, I guess, 90, 95%. Like we can get away with, from what I've seen, as low as 85% of your 1RM to still induce some type of strength progression. Yeah, I, I, I think so. I, I think getting higher up there, though, is probably a little bit more important as you become more trained. And as the movement becomes more complex, right? So for example, Adam, on a, on a bicep curl, 70% will get you just as strong as 100%, right? In most days, in a knee extension. And this is just how research works, right? It informs us on, on different principles and, and we apply these to real scenarios and, and they always carry some, some truth into those scenarios. On a knee extension, 70% and 100% are probably going to be pretty similar. On a squat bench deadlift, that window is going to become more narrow, right? Because it's more complex. The skill component is more important. So 70% is no longer going to increase your 1RM as good as doing a 1RM. So it's, it's finding, okay, is 85% going to do it? Maybe. But if 85% isn't doing it, then okay, let's try 90%, right? And there needs to be a trade-off. So the trade-off there is going to have to be you make sure your volume's low enough that you're recovering from this, right? And you're putting stress on your connective tissue. And you know, I've been thinking about this a lot more, and we've had some conversations on this, but Adam, the you know, people call it central fatigue. I think the decrease in strength that you're experiencing is likely the communication of your muscle and your connective tissue with your brain saying, don't let him fire at hundred percent right now because the integrity of this tissue is not at hundred percent. Right. So I, I think somehow, and, and, you know, the central fatigue has been perpetuated as an issue with the central nervous system itself. I think based on some things I've read, I, I, I think the issue is still with the tissue, right? the muscles constantly in communication with the brain. So I think if you're not able to fire at hundred percent, I think that's you protecting yourself from hurting yourself. And this right? actually makes me think of something as well that I recently discovered in myself, Adam, what about your other, other muscle groups surrounding your chest, the, the stabilizers, the anti-antagonist muscles, because something that recently happened with me was the exact same thing with my overhead press. However, once I started really focusing on my rotator cuff and focusing on all my stabilizing muscles in my shoulder, my overhead press went from 95 to 135, same reps in a matter of a month. So, yeah. So I think that's something that I'm actually experimenting now is trying to actually strengthen my overhead. Um, and to Dr. Buckner's comment, yeah, I've had so many injuries to my shoulders with football and basketball. So I think that's one variable that kind of always holds me back. Um, but it's, you know, it's frustrating. And I think, you know, I always took the approach as, you know, you want to get as specific as possible. So train at those higher intensities, but that trade-off is going to, Hey, okay. Back off should probably be at lower intensities and just probably not as much reps and sets are going to be induced. So I can come back the next day or whatever next session may be fully recovered. So I can still get some quality work in at that skill movement of the bench water deadlift. Yeah. Or, or decrease the frequency too. You know, there's, there's different things you can, you can mess around with to find what's going to work for you. And 
you know, unfortunately, the research isn't going to perfectly answer your scenario because it's too hard to find, you know, 30 of you to put through a program um, where half is going to have to do something that's probably not going to be optimal for their, their progression. So, so I, I guess I, I would ask your question on that. So that's another thing that I've tried was frequency with, right? Strength is a skill. I was like, okay, so if I do this more, I should get better. And I've had, you know, maybe two lower low days where it's okay. Intensity is still relatively low, but reps and sets are, I was still moderate, but okay. Hey, I'm doing it more and more and more. Um, and I didn't really get much benefit out of it. And I always say for my specific situation, maybe it's time for Adam to go up a weight class. So he doesn't have to go through the stress of water cutting 10, 15 pounds. So, um, this upcoming meet, that's what I'm going to try doing. So we'll see how that goes. All right. Yeah. That'll be exciting. So for, I guess though, for, I guess, frequency wise, would you agree with that more of that specific movement should lead to more strength increases? Or again, is it going to kind of obviously depend, but what is your general thoughts on that? Well, I, I think high frequency at high intensity and when I say high, high load, right? Close to, um, close to hundred percent, but not hundred percent. I don't necessarily, I'm not sure that should be done at high frequency. So, you know, I think maybe you have a heavy day and a light day and that light days, um, doing the movement a little bit, but, but keeping it low volume because that heavy day is a day that, that really counts. So it's, it's, it's there to support that heavy day. So I don't think it's probably going to depend on the individual, but I'm not sure I would advocate for high load, high frequency maybe high load low frequency with more of a recovery day and a, a maybe more of a, a day where you're working some of the supporting musculature for for the different movements that you care about um and maybe that looks you know you have two other lists to think about so um you have to program all that in, in, in an effective manner but um like i i don't necessarily think like i do think the fatigue is related to the central nervous system, but it's it's related to the musculature itself. So I think lifting heavy can coexist when it's different movements and different muscles. So let's that. let's dive into this next question, which is should Adam focus on getting bigger to help him get stronger? Absolutely. Look at him. Look at this guy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm never going to be Rio. So that's, that's, I'm, yeah. I, I throw not out the window. So I'm always so, trying to get big like Rio. That's, that's who I have uh, in front of my laptop is a picture of Rio flexing his biceps. And you gotta stay inspired. Yeah. I oh. thought Rio was calves. I thought he was Dr. Calves. No, he's, he's sensei biceps. That's Dr. Biceps. Oh. <laughs> so, but Dr. Uh, Buckner, so what is that? We've always been taught, and I, that's something that, um, I strictly remember vividly in my um, internship in undergrad that you can only train for one specific thing, because if you periodize, you have to do hypertrophy, then strength, and then power, however, I guess, cycle uh, you want to do it on. So one, can you train for, I guess, in the rep range, material or intensity range for both strength and hypertrophy in the same session? And do you need to actually grow to get stronger? Okay. Yeah. So, um, this discussion is, is always a fun one. Um, there's just, I guess, so your, your audience knows, um, 
there's not perfect agreement on this area. And, 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 and in fact, a lot of people strongly disagree with a lot of these points. Um, but I, I think people are beginning to have the discussion a better understanding why we get stronger. And you know what, what we see is most textbooks, ex-phys textbooks, or if you're a personal trainer, when you took the exam, you probably learned something along the lines of the first few weeks of strength gain are neuro in nature. So your nervous system is becoming better at activating your muscles. And after that first three weeks, they say, quote, your newbie gains are over. And the reason you're now getting stronger is because you're adding tissue and that's what's going to make you stronger, right? So that's the story that most people subscribe to, um, or at least the only one they've been exposed to. So they assume that that's what's driving their strength throughout the rest of their career. Um, I, uh, on the most simple level, it's, it's probably impossible for that to be the true story because I think our ability to get strong far outlives our ability to get bigger. Meaning, I think we're done growing far before we're, we're done realizing our full strength, right? So your strength career is probably a much longer career than your growth career. Um, because I think growth is gonna plateau much earlier than, than strength adaptation. Um, and if you look at most people who are really, really well-trained, and you ask them, you know, how much have you grown in the last few years? Most of them are, are, are pretty sure that there's not much happening as far as growth is concerned, yet they're getting stronger. So although that's kind of anecdotal, we, we have experimental evidence to now support this. But trained people aren't adding a tremendous amount of tissue, if any, right? And they're still able to get stronger. And that would suggest that trained people get stronger at least in part through a neural mechanism or something that's not related to actually making the muscle bigger. So it's very intuitive and, and, and I understand um, why we believe that making muscles bigger is gonna make them stronger, right? Muscles are made out of contractile tissue and that contractile tissue allows us to produce force and move weights. Um, but what I think we sometimes overlook is the fact that we have a brain and spinal cord. We have motor units reaching out to our skeletal muscles, synapsing on our skeletal muscle fibers, releasing calcium. And every step in this process is a site where we could have adaptation, right? So we know that we can increase motor unit recruitment. We can um, look at firing rates of, of motor units. We can there's other adaptations specific at the muscle that can occur. So I think it's possible that, you know, the, the addition of, of contractile tissue is just washed out by the magnitude of effect of these other mechanisms that can drive strength. And, you know, we, we haven't definitively proved this, but we've shown several times now that making a person bigger doesn't guarantee that they're going to get stronger, right? And getting stronger doesn't depend on getting bigger. And I, I think it just opens up a conversation where we can be honest and say, I have low confidence that muscle growth is the reason we get stronger. And anyone who has strong confidence, it's based on their belief and their experience and not based on evidence, which is fine. Um, but yeah, I, I think, Adam, your, your quest for increased strength is gonna be best realized through practice of movements, 
and training, which isn't going to probably focus on hypertrophy. In fact, if you focused on hypertrophy, you're going to do a lot of volume, which is going to recover or require more recovery, more rest, and maybe even increase your risk of injury, right? So I wouldn't recommend you remove all hypertrophy training, but I would recommend that if your focus is strength, to move it down in, 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 in its level of importance within your program, prioritize strength, and include hypertrophy, but you know, don't make that a, a primary focus because I don't think it's going to be the main contributor to your performance and your strength. So something I actually referenced in a lot of my papers going through graduate school was one of your papers that touched on the variance of how much hypertrophy actually plays into a role of strength adaptations. And one of the main uh, numbers, I don't, I can't remember the exact specifics, perhaps you do, but it was like two to 20% variance on the cross uh, across the, the, the amount of research that's out there. What, yeah. how, how are ways you can even measure if, if size versus neuro versus other adaptations directly played a role into improving your strength? That's a good question, Chris. So um, this, this question has been approached in, in different ways, right? And um, the, the initial story of muscle size and strength was, was based on changes in EMG. They didn't even know they even had a change in muscle size in the original study by Morantai and DeVries. They, they looked at the circumference, but they inferred growth based on EMG, which is the electrical activity of the muscle. And that original model, if they could not explain strength by their one neuro factor they were looking at, which was activation, then they assumed that it was growth. So they had a two component model. If we couldn't explain it with A, then it must be B. Does that make sense? So this is the study that cited as evidence that muscle growth makes you stronger. It was a study where they don't even know if they had growth or not because they didn't measure it, right? So since then, what a lot of people have done, and a lot of our critics have leaned on correlations, right? What a correlation is, is if I were to put a group of people through a training study and they were to increase their muscle size and they were to increase their muscle strength, I could put them in Excel and create a regression. And as long as they're both increasing, I'm going to explain some percent of the variance, right? So what you referenced, Chris, is the fact that you could look at a study and it explains the change in muscle size explains 2% of the change in muscle strength variance, right? And there's, there's studies that find that explains a lot more, 20 some percent. Um, but here's the thing. If you do low load training with really lightweight, you can grow the muscle and not get stronger, right? So there's no variance to even explain. If you do traditional training, 70% of 1RM. 70% of 1RM makes you grow and get stronger. So your correlation is gonna be stronger because they both changed. So my lab has made the point that if I can manipulate the training to change the correlation, however I want, I could design a study to make the correlation really strong. I could design a study to make the correlation really weak. But if muscle growth was a consistent contributor, that relationship should be more consistent and not dependent on how I designed the study, right? So if I wanted to support the narrative, the muscle growth increases strength and I was 
I was content with using a correlation as my primary evidence, I would just design a study that would increase growth and strength in a way that the correlation is going to be moderate, right? As strong as I can get it. Um, so instead of relying on this mathematical correlation, our, our research group and others have began using study design. So let's compare a group that has growth and a group that doesn't have growth and see the group that, in theory, the group that has a larger muscle now should be able to get stronger than the group that didn't grow their muscle, right? So this would, we're trying to show that does exercise induced increases in size make you stronger than a group that doesn't have any increase in their muscle size. And so far, we have not been able to show that muscle growth makes people stronger than not having growth. Now, these studies have a lot of limitations. They're usually eight or 12 weeks in nature, right? Maybe that's too short to see that muscle growth is, is, is really important. But I hear people saying that it's just too hard to design the study that's going to show it, right? But think about this. If, if it's such a robust and important mechanism, I think it's reasonable to say someone should be able to show this, right? If muscle growth is the primary reason we get stronger, then certainly as a community of researchers, we can demonstrate that with study design. If we can't, then I think we have to become more open to the possibility that it's just either too weak of a mechanism or it's not doing anything for strength. But it's interesting. Some people are, are just very content with taking that correlation. And I've seen people write and, and do podcasts where they say, we, we were selective or, or we, we just chose this weak correlation and there's such and such re-ran the data and found a strong correlation, right? But my point is, I don't care what the correlation is. The correlation is a function of your study design, right? And, and, and I think the, the more fascinating point is I could design a study to make a really strong correlation. I could design another study with the same growth, but no correlation, right? So growth moved, you're, you're assuming in this situation, the growth caused strength. You're assuming in this other situation, the growth didn't cause strength and then give a bunch of excuses as to why, right? And, and I think at some point we just at least have to be open to the possibility that maybe it's not a strong mechanism, maybe it's not a mechanism at all. And, and I think that's where the field currently is, right? The, the study that we just finished that um, is now published, we, we did eight weeks of training, one group trained for growth, one group just changed for strength. And then we did an additional four weeks where both groups just did a one RM twice a week. So we wanted to test the quote strength potential. So did the group that have growth, were they able to reach higher levels of strength in that four weeks of basically a strength block, right? Focusing on just maximizing the strength. And the group that had the growth did not get stronger than the group that didn't have growth. So I think studies like this are ultimately gonna help us better understand the relationship here. And I, I think they're a lot more useful than a correlation seems dependent on like, what study design did you use, right? And, and I think that's reducing it to, you know, 
correlations are helpful in certain circumstances, right? But then you have to test the correlation and with experiments to see, okay, does this hold up in, in all these different situations? And it it doesn't. And um and I think Scott Dankel's written he 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 understands the stats a lot better than I do, and he's written a little bit on this. Um with with the, the correlation and, and the 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 causative nature of that correlation and um, overall, I guess, a lack of consistency of that relationship, I think, is very telling. So I'm hopeful that with time, we better understand this. But at the very least, I think people should put less weight on muscle growth as a mechanism for strength at the moment. I totally agree. And I, from what I've also understood is like you can run your statistics to kind of correlate or show whatever you want it to kind of show. Um, and I think from some of our lab meetings, we've even seen that that why do they run this? Well, they kind of maybe ran this to have this strong correlation so they can kind of piggyback on that from their discussion um, and go forward towards that. Um, but from what you described, that's pretty heavily of your your criticism of, you know, the periodization literature. Am I correct on that? It, it, it goes deeper than that at this point, but um, at a surface level, yeah, we've questioned, yes, do you need a hypertrophy block before a strength block, right? Because the idea with periodization with some models of periodization is that you have a hypertrophy block and that potentiates or enhances your following strength block. And there's not good evidence that that's true. So that's, that's one of our criticisms. Um, our, our current criticisms go deeper because the definition has no consistency across studies and the studies used to examine periodization are you know, six or eight weeks of programming with variation versus six or eight weeks of programming with no variation. And we just don't think that's periodization. Um, that's maybe a topic for another podcast, but um, I, I think if, if we were to subscribe to a definition that actually is periodization, um, I, would, I would certainly leverage that criticism that I don't think a hypertrophy block is necessary before a strength block, for sure. And that's actually funny that uh, you mentioned, or we are bringing up periodization because literally Adam, like a week or two ago, when I was walking on his campus with him, uh, literally he, he had mentioned this periodization that I had never even heard of. Like he, do you remember what you said, Adam? I don't remember, but I think I just named some bullshit up. Just like, <laughs> it was like, like you could just throw periodization in front of it or behind anything. And it's, it's something. So I remember we had we had John Kylie on and his criticism of periodization was, I think, very similar of what you would kind of have Dr. Buckner in kind of the, the almost having the flexibility because we don't know what is going to happen moving forward. Like we expect it to be very linearly in progress. But as you said, you're getting pulled in all these different directions. You can't say, hey, A is B because that yeah. line to A to B is never going to be exactly how we would want it. Um, and from the research that you know, and um, he has also referenced uh, with Hans Salier, it was with rodent models. Um, and to kind of pull from that is it's kind of far-fetched, especially now being in 2021. Yeah, I think the periodization literature is currently scrambling to reestablish itself. But I, I think we just have to accept that I think the general adaptation syndrome was misused and I think maybe people get scared that if that's true, that periodization is dead, which isn't the case, right? Because, you know, from, from all I've read and, and I was a strength coach, you know, 
um, for, for, for a time in my life before I was a researcher. And periodization is just, it's stress management with a fancy name, right? And there's such a resistance right now to questioning anything regarding relating to periodization. It's, it's bizarre to me, right? But I think we're getting to the point where we're being forced to define things correctly and we're being forced to acknowledge that we were studying programming and calling it periodization. And that caused a whole cascade of confusion. They, they perceived variation as periodization when that variation was supposed to exist to account for other stress to make sure you didn't overtrain, right? But what it became for a lot of people is if you have fancy programming that's doing something different all the time, that's periodization, right? But the truth of it is, if you're in a hypertrophy block in a periodized programming, right? That hypertrophy block, you could do the same thing every single day, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, for a six-week block, or you could do hypertrophy strength power in a six-week block, and they both can exist in a periodized program. One has variation and one doesn't, right? Yet we've, we've zoomed in on it, and variation, the essence of what periodization is. And it's it's so confusing to people. And then it's it's so polarizing when you talk about it or you question it, which is bizarre in the field of science, but I, I, it happens sometimes. Um, John Kiley has, his papers are really fascinating and his perspective, I really appreciate it because he, he has a lot of experience as a coach and I think he said, you know, you try to predict these things. He's like, you just can't do it. You got to listen to the athlete. You got to pay attention to things. Um, when I was younger, I always wondered, like, I didn't, I, for one, I didn't fully understand periodization because it seemed so confusing to me. But then I wondered, like, am I really losing out on gains here? Because I don't know if I varied that properly. And I look back, I'm like, oh, my gosh, I didn't, you know, I was sold this bag of goods that was so complex that it's going to take three more PhDs for me to understand it, right? And it turns out it's not like that. It's not like that at all. I think yeah, I think that's the 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 biggest case because I talk when I talk to a lot of people that you know inquiry um, with us, it's like I've been told this, I've been told this, I've been told this. I just don't know what the hell to do. I was like, all right, just like let's like you said, let's zoom out and just focus on the basics. And when we start doing that every single day for a long period of time, you'll start seeing that, hey, you were just getting pulled and you didn't see results after two weeks and you started going back to a different one and just going yo-yoing and not being consistent in that nature isn't is a recipe for disaster. So, but what, in your opinion, why is there, like, out of all the fields, I feel like, and I'm not, I'm very, I guess, I live under a rock almost, um, but from conversations I've had, we're, exercise science is one of those fields that, we just can't agree on almost anything. And why do you think that is when it comes to nutrition or even training? It seems like there's just so much egotistical nonsense going on. And that's frustrating, even as a researcher or just anyone that just wants to provide, you know, quality evidence to support what you're trying to do. Yeah, I, I think um, we're, we're probably all naive to other fields, right? Um, I, I think all fields at the, at the forefront of, of different topics, I, I'm sure there's always disagreement, you know? And I think a really good example, just to throw one in there, is in the pharmaceutical worlds or PA world or physicians, family care providers, uh, marijuana or uh, medical purposes for that, 
you either have your physicians that are really for it or they're really against it. So, yeah. So, yeah, I, I think it probably does exist in all fields. Um, There's a recent paper that came out um, and it kind of seemed like a response to a lot of my periodization work over the last few years. And I read the paper and we even discussed it in class, right? And we read different sections and they seemed like they were responses to me, but I said to the class, I said, do you guys see a lot of disagreement here? I said, I don't see a lot of disagreement. Honestly, they're saying periodization programming have been confused, which is what we wrote basically. We did a whole paper on the definitions showing that they've been confused. So that was a, a place of agreement. Um, there was a few things. There was like getting stuck up on the history, but I don't know. I, I, I think um, no, but the periodization one's bizarre to me because I, I, I think there is a little bit ownership happening where this idea, certain groups have ownership of the idea, right? And, and, and I'm viewed as an outsider. So I think that's playing into it. Um, but I think science ultimately is, is a great tool that is self-correcting and, and over time in one way or another is, is ultimately gonna bring us in a place of, there's mostly agreement on this with probably a few outliers. And I think when you have ideas that go against the status quo, I think it's very natural that you're going to meet, be met with resistance and, and be questioned and, and, and maybe be made to feel like your ideas are really silly. Um, but then people calm down and, you know, different labs begin asking similar questions and then it gets harder and harder to ignore something, right? And I think periodization is there, you know, I, I know it's on the topic of the, the podcast today, but um, periodization is getting to the point where a lot of people are, are reading our papers and like, this makes a lot of sense, right? Um, I thought this was periodization. I'm now realizing it's not. Periodization is a stress management. That's, that's simple. That's something I can use, right? And you, you guys know that for me, periodization is you know, the classic model, you decrease volume over the time. The reason you do that is because you're increasing the volume of your sport. It's balancing stressors. And for some reason, saying that has been controversial, right? And um, I don't know why, but it, it has been. And yeah, I think that's just science at the forefront of something. And um, you guys got to learn really closely with me. And since I'm kind of fighting that, I'm not fighting that. I'm, I'm discussing that in the literature and in the um, in the way that we are. It, you guys get to see it a little bit firsthand, which hopefully was fascinating and and, and enjoyable, um, although confusing at times, right? When when experts disagree, um, and I'm not calling myself like the expert, but there's plenty of experts that disagree with me, right? It's like, well, what do, what do I go with here? When when the science has such clear disagreement. But what it does teach me is that I don't really put my two cents in on anything else other than my, my little circle of, of, of knowledge because like, I see how wrong people get my topic all the time. So it's made me realize like, wow, I, there's no way I'm, I'm, I'm well-read enough or researched enough to understand most things outside of my little tiny bubble. So it's in a lot of ways, it's humbling. That's for sure. Cause I remember again, I don't know if it's just 
reading a textbook and thinking, Hey man, like I got this all. And you walk into your master's degree and you're like, no, you're wrong. And it's, I vividly say this a lot, like a master's degree, Chris and I were saying, change the way we think about things. And um, maybe just from like internship and our coaching mentorship previously, it was, Hey, this is the way, this is how we do it. And this is how it should always be done. Um, and now you start going through a master's degree. You actually start reading the literature. You're like, okay, it's not so black and white. It's it's there's a lot of gray and you have to understand that that person in the middle, that client is probably the most important thing that we probably should discuss with. And uh, that was the main message I got from John Kiley when we spoke on periodization. So yeah. Dr. Buckner, though, this has been a blast um, for the outro, though. We like to ask a few questions. Uh, first off, we want to ask, right, you're an avid reader. Um, I don't think uh, there's a time or day that I run into that you don't have something in your hand or reading or other than a caffeinated beverage. Um, but is there uh, three influential books that you would recommend to us and our listeners that you just really enjoy reading or just it kind of had an impact on your life? Hmm. That's a good question. Honestly, it's been so long since I actually read a book because I read papers all the time. Is that green eggs and ham right there? A little green eggs and ham, yeah. And then text behind that's my Han Salier textbooks. Um, hold on a second. The structure of scientific revolutions. Thomas Kuhn. This is a uh, a pretty interesting. It's, it's it's a pretty heavy read and. If you're into science, I think it's 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 a book that could be um, appreciated. Um, I love reading Hans Selye. His Stress of Life book to me was very interesting, um, and it, it was important to me because I I, I study and I, I write a lot of periodization. Um, if I came up with a third, I'm just going to throw The Hobbit out there because that's just a really enjoyable book, and sometimes you need to get your mind off all this science that's full of drama at times and intensity and and uh so yeah you gotta sprinkle in a little bit of enjoyment and find ways to get your brain out of out of the depths of science at times manage that stressors <laughs> yeah you gotta manage the stressors so you don't experience the uh exhaustion phase of adrenal adaptation syndrome for sure and then you're an avid uh player of pokemon favorite region I mean, we got to go with a Canto. That's, that's OG here. No, OG. Gonna, okay. yeah. I figured, I figured, cause I, I recognize and I, I'm jealous still of the, the, the swag that you wear around campus every single day. So well, no doubt, no doubt. Dr. Buckner, like I said, it's been a blast. I appreciate you coming on uh, for our six listeners. Could you let them know where they can find you and where or what articles you would say you would recommend for them to read if they really want to come be familiar with your work? Yeah, um, my Google Scholar profile, uh, just type in my name on Google, Samuel Buckner, um, and you can see everything we've been working on. Uh, my social medias are pretty weak, so I mean, I wouldn't go there expecting too much, but you, I, you're welcome to follow me on Instagram, and occasionally I'll, I'll post up our, our studies when they get published. That's just at Samuel Buckner, I think. Um, I know you can shoot me an email. Uh, my, my USF page has my email. If you got a question, um, I think our program is one of the best. So I always say, um, come to your master's degree at USF. Um, I, I work with a small group of individuals who work really hard 
to answer scientific questions. And I think it's a really incredible way to learn and um, understand science and ask questions. And um, that's what it's all about for me. Uh, education, both at the undergrad and, and graduate level, I, I think it's just so important to try to develop critical thinking skills and um, ask questions um, all the time when, when appropriate. And I think most of the times it's appropriate. So yeah, that's all I got. Got it. And that's all the smoke on strength of physique with Dr. Sam Buckner from University of South Florida.